The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was relationships, and Dr. Marcus DiCarvalho from Untangling Addiction led a track called Untangling Addiction, Stronger Through Jesus-Styled Discipleship. Dr. Marcus DiCarvalho, or Dr. D for short, has written for Discipleship.org a great ebook about overcoming addiction through discipleship. As a medical doctor and disciple of Jesus, he brings a unique approach to this topic. You can download this book for free at discipleship.org slash addiction. Now for today's track session. This is a very personal class to us because 15 years ago we were sitting on the edge of will we make it or will we not? And, you know, sexual addiction, I'll let Dave talk about that, had come into our marriage and been on and off for 20 years. And for me, destroying a lot of confidence, destroying my trust. Um, But it wasn't just that. I had a whole journey before I met Dave that was coming into play that I didn't even understand, of being sexually abused as a little girl. uh, I had a great family growing up in so many ways, but then my father becoming an alcoholic in my teen years. And, um, And all of this together created this, this, dance in our marriage, uh, this unhealthy dance that eventually just hit a crisis point and finally I hit a dignity point of I cannot continue this way and I've got to change, he's got to change and I had to come to the point where I was willing to lose the marriage to find it. And I tell women, I had to figure out that being Dave's sister in Christ was more important than being his wife. There had to be a whole shift in my value system. And discipleship was such a big part of it. In fact, I really do not believe we would be standing here. And now we've been uh, going and teaching leading marriage seminars for some 12 years after a lot of hurt and a lot of hopelessness. Now God's using us to restore marriages all over the world and to help not just marriages, but individuals find hope after whatever life has brought them in the way of uh, abuse, abandonment, or addiction. And so we come here today uh, with a personal story, but also that personal story thrust us on this journey of learning where we created a whole library of sexual addiction at our house, a whole library about um, recovery, and we needed all of that to be able to do what we do today. Yeah, when God created this order of creation, is interesting because um, Robin always talks about, you know, why were women created last? You know, does that make us somehow secondary to men? You know, and um, the women all get very excited when she shares her her view of God's creating women last, and that is that each day of creation got more and more complex. Okay? <laughs> Starts with basics, more and more complex. So it makes a lot of sense that women being more complex mm-hmm. were the pinnacle of God's creation. Right. The word for God forming a man is yatsar, which means like to form a, a, a pot, you know, a pottery, making a beautiful, wonderful pot. But the word for God forming the woman is bana, which is the word for someone building a palace. And so um, I tell people, I've had 38 years of exploring this palace, and, and there's, I'm still not bored. There's more bored to learn. More things, all, every day I'm learning about God's wonderful creation. But interestingly enough, after God created woman, he created something even more complex. He created marriage. He created marriage. It was the ultimate God's creation. However, you think about his idea, his dream of marriage, is that marriage would reflect his glory. When we talk about glorifying God, it means to make God known, to reveal God. So a marriage that glorifies God, when people look at the marriage, they say, I see God there. I see the attributes, his eternal attributes. I see them on display in that relationship. And so no wonder marriages are under attack. Because a marriage is glorifying God, it's making God known, where God's love is made known, his patience is made known, his, his wonderful eternal attributes are being made known, that's a threat to Satan. It's a threat to his, his domain. And so 
the idea of marriage is being broken um, is certainly something that Satan has gotten very good at. Something we're seeing happen. And in our world, we were zealous for God. We were zealous for God as college students. That's what brought us together in a Christian college. We actually went to college with Bobby Harrington uh, at Harding University way back in 1900 and none of your business. But way, 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 way back there, okay? And um, we were zealous for God. And we never, ever dreamed anything would ever impact our marriage. We dreamed, we never saw any hope, any chance. We knew marriage was forever. We'd always stay married. This is not even a question. We'd never even use the D word uh, because we were loving God and devoted to God and doing missions and all these things. But unfortunately, because of my addiction to pornography and where it led into deeper and darker sexual sin, um, it got to the point where uh, people were telling Robin that she should, she should move on. She had grounds for divorce, and after 20 years, if I was going to change, I would have changed by then. And they had a point. I, I mean, I, they had a point. And even uh, the counselor told Robin, "Is like, you know, um, you know, the guy did it full time every, you know, every day." He said, "You know, there's less than 50 percent chance Dave is ever going to change." And I'm like, "I'm paying this guy 125 bucks an hour. He didn't, he didn't tell me, you know, that, that you know, that I wanted a refund at that point because uh, uh, he didn't, he didn't see me as being able to change and overcome my addiction to pornography." And what that did to our marriage, how it impacted our marriage, that's what brought our marriage to the brink of destruction. That's what brought it to the point where people were saying, Robin should leave me and move on because I would never change. And so that gives you a little bit of a background of, of what brought us to the point as far as saying the marriage was broken. Well, it was, it was definitely cracked. It hadn't broken apart. We didn't ever file a divorce, but it had been damaged significantly to the point that many thought it should end. Um, Isaiah 58, 12, so beautiful. Some of you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will restore the foundations laid long ago. You will be called the repairer of broken walls, the restorer of streets where people live. You know, and as I looked up this scripture, I found that so many people believe this is talking, really talking about Jesus. Because who is the repairer of broken walls? Who is the restorer of the street we call marriage? Who is the one when chaos comes? Who knows that we go to to figure out what is our foundation and how in the world do we restore it? And to me, that was the hope. And that was the hope I had to learn really today going to share with you how we found hope. How did we work through restoring this marriage and how do we help other people repair broken walls? God loves to restore things. I don't know, but maybe you guys can like this. I like watching these car restoration shows. It's kind of cool. They, they dig something out of the, the swamp or out of somebody's garage or they're all rusted. And, you know, I think, but that's God's nature. He loves to re restore things. And so uh, in working with marriages, we're dealing with something that's close to God's heart. He loves to restore. But And Jesus said he came to seek and save that which is lost. And so I believe that's dealing with how we, we will be saved. I think it goes beyond that. I think Jesus loves to be involved in helping us regain what we've lost. Things that have been lost and in marriages that have been broken and damaged, we lose things. We lose things through addiction. We lose things like a sensitive heart. We lose things like our boundaries. We lose so many things through addiction. And of course that carries into marital losses as well. Jesus loves to help us find what's been lost. And in our churches, you know, so many couples look like they have it all together and come in with happy faces but underneath it, they feel lost. Uh, I've talked to so many women who feel lost in their marriages. They don't feel heard anymore. They don't feel seen. They don't feel understood. They don't think they have a voice. Or if they have a voice, they're afraid of the reaction they'll get. They feel lost. We talk to men who feel lost. Will she ever respect me again? You know, where is my dignity? Who am I? And, you know, this vision, Jesus is the one who gives life to those who are lost. It's okay to admit we're lost. You know, we're, it's okay to admit that we're hurting in our marriages. And because this is the truth, is that married couples hurt a lot. 
you know, this is real life marriage. It isn't all fairy tale. You know, life comes and we go through hard stuff together. But Jesus comes to seek us out in those places because he is the expert at giving life to where places of doubt, places of hurt, places of wonderment, you know, of being scared. Jesus is the one. I think we have to kind of accept this as a lifestyle. Get older, uh, we relate, I mean, every day I lose something. It's, a, it's keys, cell phone, wallet, or glasses. Those are the big four, you know, and I, how, how many times my couches have been dug through, sometimes I search underneath the seats of the car. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a daily process of losing and finding, and at some point you say, okay, it's, it's, this is the way it's going to be. I'm going to have to keep searching and finding the rest of my life, and it may even get worse. But it's sometimes in our marriage, we want to have everything together. We, we don't want to have to, to apologize again for the same thing for the whoever may have at the time. You know, we don't want to have to admit that, you know what, I'm still not doing things, I'm still falling short. That's hard. Uh, but the sooner we understand that Jesus is right there to help us find things that we've lost in our relationship, the sooner we'll be able to then do better and make progress. Yeah, I could remember moments laying in bed beside my husband. You know, many wonderful moments, by the way, you know, laying in bed beside my husband. But I can also remember moments where my heart was broken. And the thing that kept me from running off and hiding and giving up was, was him, Jesus. You know, that he was there for me in my broken heart. And I learned how to bring him into our marriage. And I think that's what we've been on a journey on, is how do we bring discipleship and how do we bring Jesus into this marriage? Because with him, it's freedom and release and, and hope. And he even takes our wounds and makes, makes them places of ministry for us. I never know which way to point this thing, actually. I think back there. Over here, okay. back. So obviously, there's losses happening for all kinds of reasons. Of course, Satan's attacking, trying to tear down what God wants to be God glorifying. We're talking about losses in return in regard to overcoming addiction. If there's been addiction in the marriage, there's really two aspects of it. There's a person's individual recovery, what Dr. Marcus did a great job talking about in the last session, of what it takes for an individual to embrace recovery and, and to find uh, sobriety and freedom. But when it, it's a married couple involved, whether one or the other or both are involved in addiction, there's a separate recovery journey that they have to go through as a couple. And we've seen it, uh, unfortunately, we've seen sometimes, uh, in some cases, a man go off and to even an in-house recovery uh, camp or place, and, and he'll come home, you know, all fired up that he's found some sobriety, he's doing well, and that's, we're excited about that. But the wife's been at home watching the kids for the months while he's been away, and and as much as she'd like to be excited about it, um, she hasn't been on the recovery journey. She's just been where she's been. And that can all of a sudden lead to a lot of tension, a lot of difficulties. And we just found that if couples can recover together as a couple and not do it, you know, they have their individual recovery, but they also need to go through a couple's recovery to find peace in their marriage. You know, a lot of women think, um you know, or partners, let's say partners, because sometimes it's the woman who's had an affair or an emotional affair or, or some kind of break in the covenant of marriage. But, you know, the partner can easily think, well, he gets better, we'll be better. Just go get better. You know, I really don't even want anything to do with this, you know, just, just get better. And in a way, that's a type of denial for us. You know, we want to, we're so scared of it. You know, and it's, it's, it holds so much power that we go in a type of denial. And so I started a group, um, oh, probably the first one was 10 years ago, called Partners in Purity, where women figure out their part of the journey if their partner looks at porn, or if their partner's been unfaithful, or if their partner, you know, has devastated them with some kind of addicted behavior. And what we found was, was those women had their own part of the story, had their own wounds, had their own part of healing to do. They needed individual recovery. But then we found how powerful it is if those two recovery journeys come together and people learn to work on recovery. Two are better than one, right? 
If one falls down, the other one can help them up. You know, if one lies down, how will he stay warm without someone beside him? And so marital recovery is powerful. We found in churches, unfortunately, is that churches kind of held this teaching, well, um, guys, if you're having a struggle with purity, just talk to the brothers. Don't talk to your wife about that. You know, uh, just just talk to the, to the men, and because that might uh, set her off, or that might you know she couldn't handle that. And so just talk to the men. And the men were usually happy to get that advice because yeah. <laughs> they didn't really want to be talking to their wife about these things. But we felt like that's that's hurt a lot of people that that teaching. And we're gonna give some examples of how to do it properly. But if um, you know biblically, you know. It doesn't make sense biblically for for some very specific reasons. If I were to steal uh, 50 bucks from Dr. Marcus, uh, and uh, I, I wouldn't have to because he'd give it to me if I needed it. But I'm just, I'm just hypothetically here. If I were, to, if I were to steal that, and I was embarrassed about it, I, I was really ashamed of it. So I said, you know, fans, fans, I want to make this right. I'll, I'll give you the 50 bucks. You know, I'll I'll, I'll give you the 50 bucks because I feel bad about keeping this money. What if I solved biblically? Would that relationship be reconciled that was disrupted? No. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. You have to go to the person you've sinned against. That's the biblical principle. You sin against someone, you get it right with the person you sinned against. And if a man is breaking the covenant he made to be sexually committed entirely, 100% to his wife, that was his commitment in marriage for her and her only, I can't get that right by talking to a brother. Now, it's good to me to talk to the brother about it, but I really haven't resolved things biblically by doing that. Um, second, the Bible says that the, the two are to become one, flesh. And so, if I have a secret, or she has a secret, that part of me, not keeping secret, that part of me is unavailable to her. That She can't be one with me because part of me is unavailable. And so we really can't be two becoming one if there are secrets in the marriage. And then, of course, the third reason we believe is, it's just, this is not so much biblical, but just practical, is that for recovery to take place, you have to come in to relationship with truth yes. and reality. Mm -hmm. And confessing to the brothers is, is one level of reality. Confessing to the wife is a different level of reality. And I've had, I've had men, strong men, when I suggest to them, you need to be open with your wife, turn into, you know, yeah, just much. Thank you. Because <laughs> like, that thought was so, just, just, you know. But see, the porn world is a fantasy world. And you overcome a fantasy world by living in reality. And when you're dealing with this issue, uh, reality is so important. And that's why being able to talk to the one you hurt is so important. So we want to give you some principles today. I think that's where we are next, if I could get this to flip. Four discipleship principles and talk about how these create healing and health in marriage. The, those four principles are lordship, light, something we're gonna call mediated love that actually came from Bonhoeffer, the cost of discipleship, and covenant. So that's our journey for today. So in lordship, we're gonna discover, we're gonna talk about the yoke that we have with Jesus and with other people and how we're bonded together with Jesus' design there is an element of oneness, a partnership. You know, when Dave and I, I remember the day when our marriage hit the skids, and uh, Dave had called the dating line. We had been through 20 years of on and off pornography, um, strip clubs, uh, adultery, uh, but there were good periods. One time, almost two years, there were good periods where Dave, you know, was able to gut it out for a period of time, and so, we hit this point, Dave had called a um, dating line, he wanted me to see it as a victory, that she didn't want to talk about sex. And I'm like, no, this is not a victory. And he said the words that changed everything, I'll never be able to do enough for you. And I asked him to get his stuff and leave. And that set me on this journey with God. Who am I? You know, how do I make these decisions? I had women all around me in my ear, like, Robin, this is your chance to get out. This is your chance to be happy. Maybe your soulmate is still out there. And then, you know, I, first of all, I realized, and this is what I tell women, no one could decide for me. No one. Even my best-meaning friends who were trying to set up places for me to go and move out and do all this stuff, 
No, no one could decide for me. But one person could, and that was Jesus. And I remembered Jesus as Lord. And then I said, Jesus, you called me into this relationship. I believe that. I've seen so many evidences. Your hand brought us together. Are you calling me out? In following you as Lord, would you have me walk away from this marriage? And the more I prayed about that, fasted about that, read books, sought God, I became convinced I wasn't being called out. But yet, I needed to see some evidences of the yoke in Dave as well. We'll talk about that more in a moment. It wasn't like, okay, that's all okay, and let's go on. No, I needed to see some changes in Dave for me to continue to invest in the marriage. But Lordship gave me sanity. Lordship reminded me of who I really am, that Jesus is Lord, and that's how I make these kind of decisions. So would you the scripture, obviously, that this oneness that God intended for a man and a woman back? to have, yeah, this oneness, the God's vision of oneness, it's a beautiful vision, but again, it glorifies him, because God is one, right? Father, Son, and the Spirit, that we, as becoming one as a couple and living as one, we are glorifying, we are reflecting the very nature of God. And that is the call that we are to have as disciples, to live out the oneness element of God through a marriage relationship. You know, when I looked this up in the Greek, zygos, um, and I think we all know the wooden bar that goes over two oxen and holds them together, but also in the Greek, figuratively, it's what joins two people to work together as one unifies two elements to work as one. So obviously, to find restoration in this marriage, we needed some yoke work. You know what I mean? We needed some yoke restoration. We needed to figure out how to be able, after all this devastation, to move together as one. What did that mean, and how would we do that? Jesus said, of course, come to me, all you are weary, burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Obviously, Jesus had to be in the middle of this. He had this attitude, this whole journey of, of following and listening and submitting to Jesus, and, and, and especially the spirit of it as gentle and humble people had to really be what was guiding this whole thing. Because um, if it hadn't been that way, many times it, it gets, can get pretty heated and pretty, you know, a lot of pain and a lot of anger can come out. But ultimately, as disciples, if we're going, living out the model of Jesus, it can come back together. Think how powerful the scripture is if we read it. Just one more second, if you could go back. Um, if we read it, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened in your marriage. Mm -hmm. Or in, or in the wake of disappointment, hurt, or in the wake of adultery. All you who are weary and burdened, come to me, take my yoke upon me, and learn from me. And I feel like that's what I needed, and I'll tell you more about that in a moment, how that worked. So, obviously, uh, God's intention is for us to, to do it together. I, I, I envision, as we're looking at this class, I'm thinking about even uh, a yoke where you've got uh, Three, we got Jesus in the middle, and a man and a woman on either side, all pulling, love. all <laughs> pulling together. I'm getting ahead of ourselves, but that was my vision of what God's yoke might look like. And the word yoke also in Strong's uh, has the idea, you know those um, those weights that have two dishes, you know, and uh, so it has the idea of an equal amount in each dish. You know what I mean? That there's balance. And so somehow we had to learn to each pull our own weight in the relationship. There was work. It wasn't time for me to thrust all of that on Dave and say, listen, you know, this is all yours now. You fix this. No, there was equality there that we both had a yoke to take. And there was balance we were seeking in our relationship. So for me, I just wanted to give a couple specifics. Um, you know, I can remember when we got into recovery, Dave threw himself into recovery after that. We had a 40-day separation. Dave threw himself into recovery. He got a sponsor. He started going into groups. You know, over time, started going to groups. 
took medications, I don't know, he, he was doing everything he knew to recover. But our relationship was still mess messy, and as Marcus talked about, there were some relapses, some really painful relapses. And for me, I would go down on my pre-core trainer in the morning, you know, it's just like an elliptical trainer, and I'd start praying, and I'd start surrendering the pain. <coughs> You know, because I was so full, I'd wake up so full of anxiety, but actually the anxiety people could have stayed. I was so full of anxiety and so full of stress and so overwhelmed, all I could do is pray. And I'd start praying and I'd start surrendering the pain and I'd be folded over the top of the exercise machine weeping in pain. And then I would um, remember Jesus. And I'd say, Jesus, you're Lord of my pain. And I'd, I'd start specifically saying, Jesus, I surrender to you, to your lordship, the anxiety I feel about this. I surrender to your lordship, the fear I feel about this. And I'd go through a period of surrender. And then I'd start praying, God, you are my rock. You are my strength. You are my wisdom. You are my protection. You are my help. And believe it or not, out of all of that came whoopsie, a book. In fact, I started taking paper with me down to my exercise machine and writing down the very messy stuff as I would surrender, and that became a book called Secure in Heart, because what I really was trying to learn was to be secure in God alone. But I also needed to see that David was taking up the yoke. I needed to see him, like Marcus was saying, that he was relationally recovering. I needed to see him making phone calls. I needed to see him reading books. I needed to see men in his life. And as I saw Dave, Dave's yoke began to comfort me. Like I couldn't believe his words anymore, but I could believe his yoke. I could believe his actions. For me, it was a whole journey of the spirit because I'd been in church. There's, there's 30 years I've been falling in, in and out of addiction. Uh, I remember as a teenager going forward at youth rallies and youth events and in tears and pulling out a response card and saying, you know, I need to overcome my battle with lust and masturbation and purity. And I was talking to ministers, I was talking to my parents. I, I wasn't just, you know, out there thinking I'm just going to get by with this. I really wanted to be free. I would keep records. I would keep a calendar. And, and uh, I remember laying on my office floor crying because I'd fallen again and again. I mean, I wanted to be free as a teenager. and so. Uh, getting a Bible degree, all these things, I really wanted to be free, and yet the, the addiction did not go away. And so now we're at a point where I'm thinking, well, you know, I, I've got all this knowledge, I've been in church for all these years, I've asked for prayers numerous times, I've talked to ministers. What do I do? I mean, I, what's left? Because I'm still not living in long-term freedom. And so I just told the Spirit, Holy Spirit, please, You've got to take me to another level here. You've got to show me things I'm not seeing. You've got to open the scriptures to me in a new way because I've read these scriptures, I've memorized them, but I'm missing something because you've said the truth will set me free and I'm not free. What is wrong? What am I missing? And I had to open myself up to, to relearning the scriptures and being willing to do whatever it takes. If it means going to a doctor, if it means going to count, whatever it would take, open up my heart to being a new level of willingness to humble myself it's humbling to go to the doctor's office and the, and the little girl asks you the friend, says, why are you here, sir? It's like, I'll tell the doctor about that. You, don't, you know, that's none of your business. You know, it's, 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 it's humbling to get into situations. I had to find a new level of humility and willingness and openness to let the spirit guide me. Whatever book he put in my path, whatever the seminar I put in my path, whatever teacher, didn't matter. Even if they were Christian or non-Christian, didn't matter. If someone could teach me how to be free, I had to be willing to listen. So that was my part of my journey. Okay, so our second point, uh, you can click it twice. Light, we will recover as we are open. And, and this is what we found, there's the ceiling to your recovery is how, how much you're willing to be open. You know, you can greatly limit your recovery if you decide to be partially open. And we knew we needed light flooding our marriage, but how do you get there? And how do you work through the messy conversations that that entails? Go ahead. Obviously, Hebrews 13.4 talks about the, the holy relationship of marriage. 
how the marriage bed is undefiled. And that's obviously a pretty grotesque picture, but that's obviously when impurity, pornography, uh, unconfessed sin is there, it does get really messy. First John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Obviously, we need a lot of Jesus, a lot of his forgiveness, but he calls us to live in the light. God is light, says earlier in that passage. In him is no darkness. And so being called to live in the light was a call of discipleship that we had, especially me, had to be willing to, to go that pathway. Sure. So, this okay. So this is one way to, to illustrate what we're talking about here is that is, remember we saw Matthew said the two are to become one. God's plan is a two to become one. And of course, you've probably read it in many scriptures, cord of three strands, it's not easily broken. So God's vision is that you've got man and woman, the two becoming one. And of course, if you're talking about two disciples of Jesus who are one with the Father, you've got a cord of three strands. And this obviously, again, reflects his glory, reflects his nature, his oneness. Unfortunately, when you have sin, embarrassing sin, addiction, uh, of, could be any kind of addiction. It could be a spending addiction, eating addiction. We feel a lot of shame, especially as Christians, we feel shame. And we tend to want to hide. And then we keep a little bit, you know, pretty much open, but we've got a few secrets. We've got a few well, maybe secrets. Maybe the secrets get bigger then, because the more you're not open, the more you find not to be open about. These could be emotional secrets as well not telling him that I was off crying alone by myself for hours after he went to sleep. You know, emotional secrets. And so, again, we've got, we've got the, the oneness has been violated. Now we have, we share a little bit, you know, some pleasantries, you know, who's taking the kids to school. We've got, we're living at this level, service level. There's still some unity, but there's still a lot of us unknown about the other person. The two has not become one. What was really shocking to me, you know, because really early in our marriage when Dave tried to disclose I had panic attacks and went into full-fledged shame on Dave, but, but then I realized that that would push him back into secrets and even to the point where, you know, marriage, yeah, there was a lot of friction going on, but I started realizing that the degree that we overlapped would be the degree of accept, true acceptance that was in the marriage, right? Because if Dave only knew this much about me, and I only knew this much of his struggle, then all of those fears and all the accusations of Satan live out here. And God intended for marriage to be a place of acceptance, total acceptance, where we reflect to each other the acceptance of Christ. So if we had secrets, we were greatly limiting the amount of acceptance that could be in our marriage. And we were weakening the very fiber of our marriage by not having this acceptance. Is that making sense to everyone? Yeah, so the amount, you see as that grows and more light came and more disclosure and eventually there was a sexual history. Maybe there was some real pain in the center of this, but there was also, I remember when Dave read me his sexual history the first time that I really understood from a to Z, the whole picture of Dave's battle. You know, the first feeling I felt was compassion. Like all of a sudden it started to make sense where it came from and why, and reflecting that compassion to Dave was so surprising to him because he expected judgment. You see, the light of, it makes sense what Jesus said in Ephesians. Wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you right in a passage talking about sexual immorality. See, the more, not only, this is not only the, the amount of acceptance, this is where Christ shines. And we want more and more and more of Christ shining into that hurting marriage because he's the healing light. Yeah, it's really interesting. We understand sexuality in terms of what God's dream and God's plan is of oneness, and that is, is acceptance. I remember going to a, a college, uh, event on a Christian college campus as a teenager and the, the minister, you know, in his, his 50s was saying, you know, sex is not better now than ever. And we're like, what is he talking about? That's disgusting. It's like, you know, I don't want to think about that. And then as you get older, you realize 
you have a lot more to accept uh, as you get older. There's a lot of things that are more uh, unacceptable in our appearances and we're not quite what we used to be. And acceptance is really the core of sexuality that God intends to be there. And so when we have the secrets, and this is what was really um, baffling to me, is that why wasn't my wife enough? Why was it, Why did I need to go out beyond the marriage to find anything sexually beyond the marriage? What was it that was missing that made me sometimes even go straight from the bedroom to look at porn? What, what, why, even, why is that even thinkable? And you realize that when there's not openness, then you can't be fully accepted. Mm -hmm. And if sexuality is based on true acceptance, what we need the most is that oneness. When there's not the oneness, it leads to dissatisfaction. And we, in our, we do seminars on sexual purity, and we talk about why Mick Jagger couldn't get no satisfaction. Um, but he tried. 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 But that's why in the world, and we tell young people when we do uh, teen events, God gives the best to his children. He doesn't give the best to the world. And why the children of God can have the best sexual relationship is we can actually learn to have a oneness and openness that is God-like, that makes... Um, this is a, a, a transcendent experience that no rock singer, no NBA star can have any idea about uh, what God had intended. So, we move on. Yes, we're good. Um, so, we had to make an agreement about disclosure. And a basic agreement we still hold to this day looks like this. Um, Dave, you're part of the agreement. Be open. We have boundaries. And if I break a boundary, to be open immediately. Right. Uh, not wait. And my part of the agreement is not to shame him. Shame would be statements like, what were you thinking? Did you even think of me when you were doing that? What does she have that I don't? Are you determined to destroy us? What's wrong with you? Are you sick? You see what I mean? Shame, shame, shame. Shame pushes people into the darkness. And when it was flipped, I also learned part of my agreement was when Dave would disclose, I'd examine in my own heart. Well, where's my sin? You know, what do I have? What do I need to confess? Where should my boundaries be tighter? Because the last thing I wanted was a double standard in our marriage. And so when I confessed, Dave had the same agreement, not to shame me. Did you want to model my disclosure? We can do it. So we'll give you a little example, um, real life, real life. We never, never rehearse these things, uh, but we'll give you a real life example of what this might look like in a, in a marriage. Uh, hi, Ann. Hi. Um, you got a couple minutes? Um, kids are all asleep, and can you talk for a minute? Sure. Okay. Good. Good. Um, you know, we were uh, preparing a class for the campus ministry event, mm -hmm. and. Um, I did. I, I usually don't look at anything on sexual topics without, you know, uh, talking to you first. But I thought, in my mind, I raised well. I'm getting ready for a class. I mean, it probably wouldn't hurt for me to do some research and get some of the statistics and things going on in our world. Um, and so I, I clicked on a site and it, it, it used a word, a sexual word that I didn't, I had never heard before. And uh, rather than just get out of there, I, I rationalized it. Well. I should know what these terms are. If I'm going to be talking to kids, I should know the lingo. So I, I researched, I, I Googled uh, this topic. And and when I did so, um, I got a lot more than I, I bargained for. You know, there, was, it led to, there was no nudity there, but the, the whole discussion of this topic it got me kind of, it was starting to get me aroused. It was starting to uh, make me want to desire to, to look at porn or other things. I mean, I, I got out of there, I left. But it, it never would have happened if I had held up my boundary about not searching any sexual topics or, or Googling any sexual topics. So I, I'm sorry. I mean, the whole thing lasted probably, probably 10 to 15 minutes before I start to finish. And um, I just I really feel terrible about it. But that's what happened. OK. Um, thanks. This happened last night? Yeah. Um, thank you for coming to me. You know, for holding your part of our agreement, and I know that must have been hard. I could tell you're nervous, so thank you for talking to me about it. Can I ask you a couple questions? Sure. Um, this was last night. Yeah. After I was asleep. Yeah. 
Um, and, um, you know, that really triggers me, honey. I mean, it takes me back to times I woke up in the middle of the night and you were using porn. It like brings up all this pain for me again. And I know that's not the same, but it triggers me and it just brings up a lot of pain. And part of me wants to throw my shoe at you or something, um, which I won't, but I'm, I just want you to know the intensity those kind of things can bring up to me of you. The helplessness I feel of you, of you being out there while I'm asleep, being tempted without me knowing it. So I just wanted to share that. Um, and um, so was there line drawings? I mean, there were no pictures whatsoever. Were there line drawings? Were there, what was there? Yeah. It, was, it was a discussion. It was uh, online where people making discussions and making comments about it. Usually I would ask what the word is, but I'll spare you guys that. Um, I don't even remember right now. This didn't happen last night, by the way. This, this happened, you know, this did happen, but it was last year sometime. And this pain is real, because I can easily pull that pain right back up of what the pain was. Um, so do you think you need a change of boundaries? Well, I think it's, because um, I shouldn't Google anything after your bed. I should just not do any searches, anything I need to know. I can, I can wait. So obviously the boundary is already in place. Not look at sexual topics without you. I think I want to go a little bit beyond that and just say I shouldn't be I shouldn't be doing Google searches after your bed. So I hear you saying that you're agreeing to that now. Am, am I right? Yep. That that is your boundary. That you're not going to do Google searches right. after I'm in bed. Right. Okay. I appreciate that. That that calms my my heart a little. Um, honey, I do forgive you, but that doesn't mean, I think, I always need some time to kind of, you know, because it does drill up old fears, and I need a little time to work through that, but I do forgive you, and I am glad that you talked to me. Thank you. Appreciate it. Totally a little, just a little spot check here. I mean, what did you guys notice, observe, when you watch this? Yes. Actually, I did notice that as well, okay. which I think usually Dave does, you know, yeah. but yeah, I did notice that. that that's, that's important. That's important. Thank you. Yeah, so I appreciate you bringing that up. What else did you see? There is a whole... Let me repeat the question. We're yeah, there, uh, how do you deal with the fear and the intensity of all the trauma that's bringing up from the past? Right, and, not, and still not, and still agree to your bargain of not shaming him. And still agree to my bargain of not shaming him. That's one reason I wrote this book, Grace Calls. It's all in here. Uh, there's a whole chapter on triggers. But I think the language of triggers helps us a ton. Because if I can say, hey, I'm being triggered back to that, then I'm reminding my brain and myself, whoa, I'm not back in that trauma. You know what I mean? There is distance between that me and that trauma. This just brings it up for me. So I'm reminding myself of that, but I'm also helping Dave not go to a shame place because I'm not saying, here you go again, you know, defiling our marriage and all this kind of stuff. I'm not, he knows that I'm being triggered and it really helps couples to learn the language of triggers. So there's a whole chapter in Grace Calls on how to do that, on how to speak in the language of triggers. So that's how we, so when I do that, honestly, as soon as I say, Dave, I'm triggered, and I vented that to him, do you know what I felt after that? I felt, I felt it shift off of my shoulders again. That's the miracle of it, is that all this work that we've done, that once I could just be totally honest, hey, that's triggering, and da-da-da-da-da, I can, I can let it shift off my shoulders. It may take a day or two, you know, it may take a little time, but it reminds me that my trauma no longer has the power over me that it used to. It's still part of my story, and I'm glad I can access the pain because then other people know that I understand who are smack in the middle of the pain. We're getting ready to have our 10th annual Purity Conference in Boston, the longest running in the world, I believe, called Pure and Simple. 
and it's also probably the cheapest in the world. <laughs> Couples come in there in all kinds of chaos, and we've launched hundreds of recovery journeys, and individuals come, but um, I pray that I can access the pain, because that pain now is wisdom and help and comfort for other for other women and other couples. And it's good for me to see that. Uh, I mean, it's, first of all, it's good when I come to her to tell her exactly, not to make her dig it out. You know, she shouldn't have to play battleship with me and, and say, "Well, was it this?" Or, no, was this? No, was it? You know, it, it, it's 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 better for me to say, "This is what happened. How long it happened. Here's the intensity of it, and I'm very sorry." Uh, that that helps a little bit, but I need to see this because that definitely helps me when that pop-up comes up the next time um, and I'm thinking about you know it's like uh, do I want to have this discussion again because uh, the, the devil will say you don't have to talk about it but then the Holy I know from experience the Holy Spirit will beat me up until I do and so I, 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 it helps me stay in reality it's like you know what uh, I don't need to see the whatever that they're, they're selling there because that's going to be a boundary break and we found as far as it's been 15 years since I've acted out sexually, okay, so, um, but we found that by dealing with it at the boundary break level, that's what's allowed us to have the freedom from the acting out level. And um, so uh, this is, this has really been a key thing to learn to talk about boundaries, because usually before there was a fall, there was a stumble. Okay? Before there was a storm, there was a clouds. And so we deal with it at the boundary level, and that's what's allowed us to have long-term uh, victory. However, a boundary break can still obviously be very painful. And we take boundaries very seriously. Yes. I noticed that your probing yeah. a little bit further mm -hmm. was probably beneficial, needed for both of you. Yeah. He described just a little bit there why that's some accountability stuff. Why was it so important for you? And I noticed you also did that after you said I forgive you, I think. Yes. Yes. Talk yes. I feel free to ask Dave any question. You know, and but that that's different from shame. I just want to make sure we're at the bottom of it. And I don't think he's trying to evade the bottom on purpose, you know what I mean? But me asking questions like, what was that search term? You know, then next time he's tempted, it'll be a protection. Oh, yeah, she'll ask me about that. You know, that, and it, in my codependency, I used to leave so much unasked. You know, I'd accept whatever shard of apology he gave me. So for me, it's a dignity issue. And again, one of the stones of grace calls it dignity. It's a dignity issue that I am God's daughter and that this is holy ground. And so I won't hesitate to ask. And Dave, he also, part of his, he will try his best not to have a defensive response. If he does, he'll circle back to me and we'll try it again. We do something we call a redo. We'll, we'll just redo the whole thing and give it another try. Well, one more question, and we got a couple more points to cover before we're done. How do no, we learn this? <laughs> yeah, we have couples everywhere tell us, is that the fairy tale version? You know, is that the cleaned up version? You know, where's the yelling? Where's the screaming? Where's the crying? You know, what is that? <laughs> um, I don't know how to answer it. It's been a combination of a lot of reading through the years. Um, I think uh, we developed it, though. But some of it is 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 original, I guess. Original means just you forgot where you, you know, where you learned it from. <laughs> um, and so I, I do think, though, that in 15 years of we have had counseling, we have been through a number of things. But this has kind of developed into our our routine. Uh, hopefully, it's from the spirit. Yeah, we've even seen you know church leaders. We go train church staffs. Is one of the things we do on how to deal with, how to build a positive culture of sexual purity and how to deal with people without threats, shame, you know, or hanging disfellowship or something like that over their heads. How do, how do you help people? So we train church staffs and we've had church staff members come back the next day and say, you know, we, we were not handling disclosures on lots of things that way, you know, and we went home last night and we had our first healthy disclosure so this isn't a tool just needed for people who are deeply admired in sexual sin. You know what I mean? This is about, like, let's say I went and spent a bunch of money and I lied to him about how much I spent. There's a disclosure needed, right? And there's now we have a mechanism for dealing with that. Or I looked up an old boyfriend on Facebook, you know, because I was mad at him, you know? You see what I mean? There's so many things we can confess. And so, Having healthy disclosures brings light and healing into the marriage and health. 
and we need to realize it at first you may not be good at it but that doesn't mean it won't work it doesn't mean something's wrong with the procedure it means give each other grace to keep working on it like okay that was kind of messy our first one let's try again you know let's do a redo how would we how would we redo that let's let's try again you know so and if I were to have a shame attack Dave lets me he doesn't correct me on the spot he'll he'll say do you think shame he'll very gentle do you think shame might be present I go back and think about it and I'll circle back and apologize to him and say you know honey I'm sorry you know I think that was shame and you're right that wasn't what I intended so I apologize and we hear we take it to the point because of my history and that we don't want to go back that uh, because we believe in the scripture that for the God's plan is the two become one in such a relationship and that that's impossible to be one if part of either one of us is, is hidden from the other. One is impossible. Uh, I can't initiate sexually or be or can't receive an initiation if there are secrets. Uh, that's that's just we, our conviction that we want to live up to God's standard of oneness and because secrets and oneness don't, don't work together, uh, that's the level we take it. Let's finish. Let's uh, go to our next tool, which is mediated love. Um, go ahead and flip twice, I think, to get to mediated love. Um, Bonhoeffer, have, have, has anyone read The Cost of Discipleship by Bonhoeffer? That is a discipleship classic. Let me say, I, I personally am biased because I read it in college and changed my life. But um, Bonhoeffer, there's a scripture in Timothy that says there's only one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. And um, in the writings of Bonhoeffer, he talks about how, he calls it mediated love, that we don't have the right as a disciple of Jesus to have a direct relationship with anyone, even the government, you know, the church, you know, brothers and sisters, family, but also you know, husband and wife. And when I came upon that, I was like, wow, what an amazing recovery principle. Because, you know, after after we had our separation and we're rebuilding and there's some setbacks and there's hurt and Dave still can be defensive and I still can be tender, you know, there were times where I felt like my love for God was here and my love for Dave was, you know, like, and, and that was healthy, you know, for then. But then I learned, wait a minute, it's not that I'm comparing my love, you know, it's not a comparison thing, it's how I love Dave. That as a disciple of Jesus, I only have the right to love my husband through Jesus. Now, if you really put your mind around that, sisters in particular, that starts changing a lot of things. Because for women, we make this relationship very direct. You know what I mean? Like, he's mine, I own him, everything he does affects me, and, you know. But if I love him through Jesus, suddenly there's a different perspective. And we call that mediated love, or Bonhoeffer called that mediated love. And it's one now that we've adopted into our recovery. Yeah, and I think um, I've done whole women's devotionals on mediated love. Keep going. Yeah, we'll recover as we let Jesus mediate. Go one more. Let's see what's next. Um, each one should test their own actions and they can take pride in themselves without comparing themselves to someone else for each one should carry their own love. You know, if you're loving someone directly, the comparison thing comes in. Wait a minute. I'm doing all this work reading recovery stuff. What are you doing? I'm with Jesus every morning. What are you doing? You know, the comparison comes in, but when you love people from Jesus, viewpoint, judgment fades away. Perfect love casts out fear. Anxiety lessens. We're able to work more, as Marcus talked about, from the frontal lobe, from our values, from our convictions, from who we are in Jesus. For me, it began to change everything. All right. So we obviously, we can't control the other person's response. We learn to trust them to God and, and pray for them and ask God to work, and that's, again, um, I do the same thing for towards our for our government. Do things things for our church leaders. It's, again, you're just surrendering everything through Jesus. You're seeing uh, the world through the eyes of Jesus, including uh, your mate. Because really, you can't control so many things. Next one. You can't recover for him, her. Uh, what you can click it twice. Um, 
I cannot recover for Dave, nor could he could recover for me, but many women, we try to do this. We want to recover for him, and that's called codependency, by the way. Codependency, love addiction, all in that realm. Like, I'm going to... I'm going to police him, I'm going to fix him, I'm going to be his recovery partner, which we do not recommend. You know, I cannot be Dave's recovery partner. Mm -hmm. I'm his partner in marriage. I, we, we recover together, but he needs men in that position. So we can't recover for each other. Go ahead. Obviously, I can't have a walk with God. For her, she has a walk with herself. And I can't have, I can't follow Jesus for Dave. That's his, too. So lastly, we'll recover as we nurture covenant. Next slide. Covenant is a, it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, concept in the Bible. We did a whole lesson on that. But obviously, biblically, we know God is a God of covenants. Remember, he made a covenant with Noah, which was what? Rainbow. Rainbow. Thank you. The covenant with Abraham, I won't make any motions or uh, let you figure that out. It's coming with Abraham was circumcision. That is sign, circumcision. Right. Uh, and the covenant in Christianity, how does God seal the covenant of Christianity? Resurrection. And we're yeah, we're we, we experience the death, burial, and resurrection uh, through baptism. Uh, the covenant is sealed. And so for marriage then, what would be the covenant? Because the idea of a covenant is that um, there's two parties. They make a verbal agreement. Then there's a sacrifice given. And then there is a meal where they consume the sacrifice together. And then there's a covenant. There's a family. That's how the covenants were formed. And so what would then be the covenant of marriage? The sign of a covenant. What would show that we have a covenant? The ring. The ring is an idea. But there's Symbol something even deeper. You don't have a ring. Sex, yes, yes, sexual intercourse. In fact, we, cons we consummate the marriage, we consume each other. And when we consummate the marriage, we're now in covenant. We're now blood and flesh, we're family. We've consummated the marriage. You know, if you don't consummate a marriage, you can get a marriage annulled in the Catholic Church, I guess. You know, because they don't really view it as a marriage. We we cap our covenant as we come together sexually. So obviously it's very similar in the renewal of the covenant. We take the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. In the Lord's Supper, where Jesus said, this is the blood of my covenant. And you consume that and you renew that covenant. Obviously in a marriage, sexual relationship is designed to be a transcendent experience. Like the Lord's Supper is transcendent that you're, you're, you're eating something, you're drinking something physical to remind you of spiritual truth. In a sexual relationship, the physical relationship reminds us of the covenant we made with one another, commitment, and the oneness that God intends to be in marriage. So we've seen a lot of, we've seen a lot in our traveling all over. One trend we're seeing is couples, even young married couples, not having sex at all or couples getting less and less and less frequent, a month, two months, six months, a year, with no sexual intimacy. And what happens is that weakens the covenant. Think of it kind of like the Lord's Supper. What would have happen if you, week after week after month, did not take the Lord's Supper? Well, during the Lord's Supper, you say, I'm covenanted with you, Jesus. I'm taking your blood and flesh. I'm in covenant with you. I'm recognizing my the covenant. So in the same way, when a couple comes together sexually, it's like they're saying their wedding vows again. You and you only. Only you see this. You know, you're the only one that, that I give my whole self to. It's like we're saying our wedding vows again. It's, it's a time of covenant. And so when a marriage, when the sex ebbs off, the covenant weakens and the marriage weakens, and it's more susceptible, right, to, to being infringed or attacked from the outside. So part of what's needed in a broken marriage is sexual healing, we call it. Sexual healing, and Dave and I needed a sexual healing journey. Actually, and this is actually uh, confirmed in the neuroscience uh, as well. Biologically, it's confirmed with release of serotonin, vasopressin, there's actually a bonding takes place. It's a beautiful bonding that God intended 
to reinforce this idea of oneness, reinforce the, the, the oneness of relationship, these chemicals released, some of them only during sexual contact, and therefore God had a plan in our very biology to reinforce the covenant of sexuality. So you have this way of initiating. Oh yes, well see, this is the way, guys, uh, spiritual men, this is the way you initiate with your wife, you just say, honey, I think our covenant needs strengthening. We need to, re need to renew our covenant. <laughs> so, sounds very, very spiritual. <laughs> so, um, we're running out of time. I was going to... Yeah, go ahead and do that. Okay, I'm going to read just a tad from the chapter on sexual healing in Grace Calls. Um, and uh, this chapter is a stone of sanctuary. Actually, Grace Calls has 12 stones. And at the end of each chapter, you go and get a stone and write a word on it. And um, many married couples have read this together. Um, individuals read it as well, but many married couples have read it and found healing and hope within here. Um, but I want to read a few words about Dave and I's sexual healing journey. The sheer risk of sexual intimacy had turned into a great revealer of my own need for additional emotional, mental, and even physical recovery. These wounds showed themselves as I deflected being present with my own body. Body image issues resurfaced, tracing back to my eating disorder in college. I even strategized how to undress when Dave was occupied in another room. So I'm talking about every place I went, you know, and how much fear had come into sexuality for me. Sexual fantasy retreating inside my head became a way to respond without the risk of communicating how I really felt. I lived out the paradox of being far away in a fantasy so I could appear to be fully engaged. I wondered what it would be like to completely shut down my sexual self, even though in our early marriage I cherished this part of our relationship. Sometimes I fed myself romance through television or movies. It pains me to admit it, but I especially enjoyed the two days after Dave and I had intimate time together. Days free from unpleasant encounters or pressure to perform. Then as day after day would pass, I would procrastinate, look for clues that he wasn't needy, and convince myself tomorrow would be better. Dave was sure I never thought about sex. Actually, the opposite was true. I fretted about it endlessly. There was a lost little girl inside of me crying for value. These wounds showed themselves often, times where I divorced myself from my own desires, trying to manage his. Nights when Dave would pronounce our encounter over when I wasn't showing enough interest. Weeks where I compromised precious boundaries in return for peace. Nights when Dave went downstairs to sleep on the couch because things hadn't gone as planned, and then I went after him to apologize. Our unhealthy patterns became well-rehearsed dance steps. Dave and I were both tempted at times to elevate each other to the status of my biggest problem in the world, a sign of mutual codependence and making each other a higher power. By the time we entered recovery after our 40-day sexual separation, we both yearned for something new, being recreated by God himself. Our marriage depended on it. Recovery allowed us to begin healing this thorny tumbleweed made up of miles and miles of repressed pain. In addition, we needed tools for diffusing the ongoing pain of trauma, triggers, and thorns. All of this would require introducing a different kind of chaos, a healing chaos. Growing through this chaos meant Dave giving me the safety of weeping in his chest over wounds he had caused. There were times when we made love with tears running down our cheeks. It meant me staying gently engaged with Dave. When feelings burned sexually, he confided he wanted to curl up in a ball and weep. As our struggles led us back to the cross of Christ, that's ultimately where this is going. I learned to pray rather than get hysterical, explode, or say something difficult to undo. Dave learned that difficult conversations could provide an entrance into intimacy instead of an exit. Through listening to my body, I rediscovered sexuality as a holy place. At the same time, Dave no longer wanted sex as medication. He dealt with pain through shedding tears often. His emerging, emerging tenderness and humility softened my heart. As God's warm son of righteousness melted away fear, insecurity, and blame, we learned to skip 
like calves in the pasture. Play, laughter, and eye contact became more important than techniques, tricks, and performance. Oneness became our supreme value. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. The message you just heard was from Marcus D. Carvalho's track called Untangling Addiction, Stronger Through Jesus Style Discipleship. Make sure to go online and download his free ebook called Untangling Addiction. You can find it at discipleship.org slash addiction. That's discipleship.org slash addiction. In addition to this podcast and that resource, you'll find many other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker. Thank you.